Kingdom to series of the third kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts. There's another host that is joining me today, Daniel Sun. Hello. Now, real quick, before we start today's episode, I just want to say that if you would like to support the show, then there's a few ways that you could do that. One of the ways is Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only 16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. In total, we have over 126 extra Patreon episodes, which is a lot of extra hours for your listening pleasure. Now, to see the list of full Patreon episodes, you can go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com. You can click on the Patreon Episodes tab, and there you will see an entire list of Patreon-exclusive episodes that we have previously published. Also, today we added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is the Box of Crazy. It is about a mysterious box that was found beside a trash can, and when it opened up, it had blueprints, letters, and drawn images of strange beings and unidentified flying objects. Yes, a lot of weird images inside there. So you get access to that episode, as well as all of the others, for just $5. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes or on Spotify, and that helps us out a lot. However, don't feel pressure to leave us one. If you don't want to, then that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are, to enjoy the show. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is about hauntings in American history. So how this episode will go today is that we'll talk a little bit about the history of hauntings in America, and then we'll go into some actual hauntings that we've picked out. What is it, like four or five of them? Around there. Yeah. And then we'll go into some theories as to what could be causing these hauntings, and then, of course, wrap it up with our own personal thoughts and theories. So with that being said, let's get into today's episode. Over 200 years ago, in a small coastal town of Maine, a strange ghostly figure roamed the streets. Since then, there have been thousands of hauntings that have occurred throughout the United States. Such as the Bell Witch. The Cottage City Poltergeist. The House of Death and much more. Are these hauntings just made up for personal gain? Or do ghosts, demons, poltergeists, and spirits really roam around in search of terrorizing random individuals? This is Hauntings in America. All right, so to start this episode off, Let's first discuss a little bit about the history of hauntings and when the first one was ever reported in America. Now, Dan, I know you know a lot about hauntings. 
you used to study under Zach Baggins. So why don't you give us a little history lesson over ghosts, hauntings, poltergeists, all that stuff. All right, all right. I'm going to need everyone to sit back in your school chairs and listen up. I know you always listen to Aaron's history lessons, but this is Dan's time. Ooh, I like that. So to start this entire lesson off, I want you all to remember back to a few years ago whenever we did an episode over ghosts. In that episode, we talked about the first ever recorded ghost encounter in history, which was in the first century AD. At that time, there was a Roman author named Pliny. This Pliny fellow wrote about a ghost encounter in one of his letters in which he talked about an old man with a long beard and rattling chains roaming his house in Athens, Greece. Now, that was the first ghost encounter. Aaron, why don't you tell everyone the first poltergeist encounter in history? Okay, now real quick, let me first explain what a poltergeist is. So a poltergeist is a ghost that causes physical disturbances, such as loud noises or objects falling or being thrown around. All right. Now, the first ever reported poltergeist in history was back in 856 AD. Now, at this time, there was a family living in a farmhouse in Germany, and this family was being tormented by a poltergeist. It was throwing stones at the family, moving furniture around, randomly knocking on the walls, randomly starting fire. <laughs> I don't know why this is funny to me. <laughs> randomly starting fires, and this poltergeist would even make noises of evil crying and laughter as it was doing these things to the family. And of course, that right there is the first poltergeist encounter in history, which it had to be frightening for the family. I'm more curious. How do you cry in evil? <laughs> That's what I guess. I don't fucking know. Well, that would right there would scare me if I hear that. <laughs> oh, man. So, of course, those ghosts, poltergeists, and other hauntings have been happening around the world for a long-ass time. However, in regards to America, since it is a fairly new-founded country compared to the rest of the world, the first reported haunting happened only 200 years ago. Yep, and this all started back on August 9th, 1799, in a small coastal town of Sullivan, Maine. Now, in this town lived a man by the name of Abner Blasdell. Now, on the day of August 9th, Abner heard strange noises in his home, but he, he really didn't pay much attention to them. He just thought, you know, maybe it's my home settling, or, you know, maybe I'm just hearing things. As the months passed, the noises continued, and eventually, a disembodied female figure appeared from the cellar of Abner's house and stated that it was the spirit of Nellie Butler, who was a young woman who had died years prior. After this occurred, Abner went around town and started telling everyone about it. Then over the next few months, Abner would bring multiple people over to his home to witness the ghost of Nellie Butler appear and speak to them. Yeah, he went around town and I think he brought, I don't know, 30 some people over. He was like, hey, come look at this ghost. And nobody believed him. Brought him over and they're like, holy shit, that is a ghost. So yeah, eventually a traveling preacher ended up arriving in the town and heard about Abner's story. So the preacher decided to start investigating it. Now this Reverend Abraham Cummings started interviewing the eyewitnesses and he gathered over 31 eyewitness testimonies from the town residents and he kept journal entries of them. For an example, a resident named Mary Gordon had told the reverend, and we quote, 
At first, the apparition was a mere mass of light, then grew into personal form about as tall as myself. We stood in two ranks about four or five feet apart. Between these ranks, she slowly passed and repassed so that any of us could have handled her. God damn, Mary. <laughs> okay. Get a little handsy. Yeah. At least the personal form became shapeless, expanded every way, and then vanished in a moment. And that right there is the legend of Nellie Butler's ghost, which, like we said, is widely recognized as the first recorded and documented haunting in American history. Now, these hauntings, of course, would continue on throughout America, and some of them would be absolutely terrifying, which we are actually going to go over some of those right now, some notable hauntings in American history. Since it is October, Halloween's right around the corner. It's spooky season. It is spooky season. All right, Dan, so do you want to tell us about the first one? So the first haunting that we are going to go over is probably one of the most famous ones in American history. It is the Bell Witch. Now, the Bell Witch was a poltergeist who haunted the Bell family from 1817 to 1820 in Adams, Tennessee. So this entire haunting began when an individual named John Bell Sr. was outside his home, you know, just randomly doing his chores when he just happened to look out into his field and something caught his attention. So way out in his field was a weird-looking animal just standing there, far away from him, staring right at him. So John stated that this animal looked weird. It was sort of like a black dog, but it had a rabbit's head. So following that, for the next four years, John and his family would be tormented by a spirit claiming to be Old Kate Bat's Witch. Now, this spirit would constantly make knocking and scratching noises on the inside and outside of their home. Not only that, but it would also physically assault the members of the family, such as pulling their hair, pinching them, and striking them with pins. Now, this spirit that was haunting the family would target the family's youngest daughter named Betsy and the father, John, the most. However, the spirit showed a lot of affection to the wife of the family, Lucy. For an example, the spirit would often bring her fruit and sing her songs. Ah. Yeah. So fast forward almost four years later, and the family was still getting harassed by this bell witch, which finally, on December 20th, 1820, the father of the family, John Bell, took what he thought was medicine, but it ended up being poison, and he died. After his death, the witch quit harassing the family. Yeah, and that right there is sort of like a quick summary of the bell witch haunting. And just a little knowledge nugget for you, okay? If you want, you can still go to Adams, Tennessee, and there is a popular tourist spot called the Bell Witch Cave, which it's supposedly the cave where the ghost resides in, and it is located on the property that was once owned by the Bell family. So if you feel like going to it, Daniel, be my guest. Oh, you mess with demons, but you won't go mess with a witch. Like no, I'll go mess with her. I know you will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I just want to say, I don't think it was a witch. Now, hear me out on this. I'm just going to throw out a little theory real quick, okay? I don't want to get completely sidelined. All right. What if the wife was seeing somebody and that individual was tormenting the family without them knowing and the wife ended up poisoning her husband so she could be with that guy who was tormenting the family? 
Just throwing that out there. Hmm. I mean, that sounds like a good theory for it. Okay. So why don't you tell us about this next one, Dan? All right. So the next haunting that we're going to talk about is another one that is pretty popular. It is the Cottage City Poltergeist, which I know the name Cottage City Poltergeist. It might not sound familiar, but I guarantee that everyone who is listening to this podcast right now is kind of familiar with this story. Absolutely. And let me tell you why. There's an American writer named William Blatty who was a student at Georgetown University. Now, during his time in college, William had heard stories about a demonic possession that took place in 1949. Now, this demonic possession ended up inspiring him to write the 1971 novel, The Exorcist, which, of course, would then go on to get turned into a movie and be considered one of the scariest movies of all time to some people. If you haven't watched the movie or read the book of The Exorcist, it's pretty much about the story of a young girl who is possessed by a demon who makes her spit up pea soup, cuss at her mom, walk down the stairs like a spider but upside down, attack priests that come into a room, and other Chris Angel mind freak-like things. Now, that is the book movie of The Exorcist, and it took its inspiration from a real-life case that happened in 1949. But instead of it happening to a girl, it actually happened to a 13-year-old boy from Cottage City, Maryland. Now, before we talk about this Cottage City poltergeist, I just want to say that we are aware that the boy's real name was anonymous until around two years ago when it was released to the public as Ronald Edward Hunkler. However, when we go over the story, we are still going to call him by his anonymous name, which is Robbie Mannheim, or he's also known as Roland Doe. So Aaron, tell us that story. All right. So this entire Cottage City haunting took place in Maryland. It was there where a young boy named Robbie lived with his mother and father. Now, Robbie was an only child. However, he never got into any trouble and was a pretty good kid. However, his favorite aunt, Dorothy, ended up dying, and this devastated little Robbie. Now, it is worth noting that before Aunt Dorothy died, she actually bought Robbie a Ouija board and taught him how to use it. So just keep that in the back of your mind. What a great aunt. All right, so shortly after, you know, Aunt Dorothy passed away, the family started to notice some strange things happening around the house. For example, on the night of January 15, 1949, the family heard skittering and scratching in the walls. Objects were being thrown across the home, and even Robbie's bed began to shake uncontrollably while he was in it. He was holding on, being like, God damn, what the f*** is going on? It's one of those electric beds that just keep closing and opening. He's like, oh my God. We know what Robbie was really doing. Oh, my God. All right. Following that, though, Robbie decided to use his Ouija board to see if he could reach out to the spirit in the home that was messing with him. Robbie made contact with a spirit that identified itself as his dead Aunt Dorothy. So after that, Robbie told his parents about the Ouija board and him being in contact with the spirit of his aunt. So you would think that his parents would take him to go see a psychiatrist, right? Like a lot of parents would probably do. Oh, definitely. Well, they did not. Instead, since Robbie's parents were very religious, they decided to invite a Lutheran minister to their home. This minister visited the family and allegedly observed some poltergeist activity and offered to take the boy to his home for further observation and safer keeping. And I'm not even joking about that part. The minister really took Robbie home with him. Anyway. 
So while Robbie was spending the night with the minister, the poltergeist activity continued. Strange marks began forming on Robbie's abdomen. Initially, they looked like scratches, but eventually they formed into the words that spelled out hell, H-E-L-L. Now, once the minister saw this, he knew that he was out of his element, but he decided to perform an exorcism on Robbie anyway, even though, you know, he was like, I don't know if I can handle this demon. So he performed the exorcism, and guess what? It did not work. Oof. Following that, a Catholic priest was called in, and after working with Robbie, the priest also concluded that Robbie was possessed. Now, this Catholic priest did not have any experience with exorcisms either, but he decided to try it anyway and use guidelines that were handed down by the Catholic Church of the past 1,500 years. And guess what? It did not work either. Shortly after that, in February of 1949, the boy was then taken to the University Hospital in Georgetown for a medical examination. Now, during the exam, doctors could not find anything wrong with Robbie, so they said, hey, you need to go home. Your parents need to go home with you. Just get some rest, Robbie. Damn, what the hell's wrong with you? Following that, the poltergeist activity worsened, and it was also reported that Robbie's cursing got extremely bad as well at this point. Eventually, the family decided to send Robbie to St. Louis where they felt the Jesuits there were more qualified to handle this demonic possession. On March 16, 1949, the Archbishop of the St. Louis Diocese authorized an exorcism. On the first night of the ritual, small scratches appeared on Robbie's abdomen again. There were reported 30 instances of these scratches, and again, individuals stated that they saw the word hell written in his abdomen from the scratches. 30 scratches, you could probably spell anything. Hell yeah, you could. So, the first night, the 45-minute exorcism ritual was repeated multiple times, which is apparently normal in exorcisms because they have to be done multiple times. So, for the next week, many exorcisms were performed at night. During the sessions, the boy would thrash about, scream profanities, had multiple seizures, and allegedly urinated uncontrollably. Now, during these multiple exorcisms, the boy was converted to Catholicism with his parents' permission, which was kind of useless because his condition only worsened. So on March 26th, it suddenly stopped, and the priest conducting the exorcisms felt that Robbie was cured. However, the priest was wrong. Only a few days later, Robbie went back into his state of demonic possession. His behavior grew more violent and even devilish voices also began speaking through him. Over the next several days, the priest stated that no progress was made. Then on April 18th, the priest started another round of exorcisms on the boy. This time, they made him wear a chain of religious medallions and hold a crucifix during the ritual. Now, these religious objects enraged Robbie, whose physical response was so great that five men had to hold him down while the priest was sitting there doing his exorcisms. Finally, at around 11 p.m. that night, in the middle of an exorcism, Robbie interrupted the proceedings and shouted, Satan, I am Saint Michael. I command you, Satan, to leave his body now. Robbie's body then went into a seizure-like flailing, but then it stopped. He became calm and quiet. Robbie then smiled, looked at the priests, and said, He 
is gone. Now, this story was pretty crazy, so we decided to look into it and see if this really happened. And this is some of the stuff that we found. So a lot of the information about the story is based on hearsay and is not documented. Another thing worth mentioning is that an investigator actually went into the town and spoke with neighbors and childhood friends of the boy. And the investigator stated that a lot of the individuals there said that the boy had been a very clever trickster who had pulled pranks to frighten his mother and to fool children in the neighborhood. Just something we thought we should mention when we looked into this. Yeah, it, it was a very weird story. The more you look into it, the weirder it gets, especially with the priest, you know, them wanting to take him home and how it got way worse whenever he came back. Mm. Yeah, but I don't know. If he was a trickster and then he went with the priest and then came back, I figured he probably wouldn't be a trickster. He'd probably just be... Well, even if he wasn't a trickster, let's just say, hypothetically, he wasn't possessed and the priest wanted to have their way with him. They would state that he was possessed just so they could have access to him. As bad as that sounds, I mean, it's happened. It's happened, yeah. Sucks. Poor Robbie, or not poor Robbie, I don't know. It's hard to, hard to say, because it's all hearsay. Yeah. Alright, so that right there is the Cottage City Poltergeist. So now, we're going to transition into our next haunting, which is the Amityville Horror House. Which, by the way, this book, the Amityville Horror book, is my all-time favorite book, just an FYI. Okay, so this Amityville Horror House, this whole haunting starts way back in December of 1975 in Amityville, New York. Now, at this time, the Lutz family was moving into their new home. Now, when they were moving in, they had no clue what had happened previously at their home. So a year prior, the owner of the home at that time, Ronald DeFeo Jr., he had shot and killed six members of his family in that same house. And it was soon after the Lutz family moved in, which was, of course, a year later, when all of the weird stuff started happening. For example, the father of the family, George Lutz, would wake up around 3.15 every morning and would go out to check the boathouse. Now, what is weird about that is 3.15 was the estimated time that Ronald DeFeo murdered his family in that home. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Because other things that the family started experiencing is that their home would start being plagued with swarms of flies, despite it being the wintertime. Also, the mother of the family, Kathy Lutz, began having vivid nightmares about the murders and the order in which they occurred and the rooms where they took place at. That's actually kind of scary. It gets worse. Another odd thing is that the Lutz children began sleeping on their stomachs which is the same way that the dead bodies in the DeFeo murders had been found. All the family members, all the children, all of them, were found on their stomach. They had all been sleeping on their stomach when the father came in and shot each one of them with a shotgun. What's weird about that is you would think after the first shot, the other family members would get up and move. That wasn't the case. They were all face down. You know what it was? What? He had very good soundproofing rooms. We need to record there. Oh, my God. All right, so to keep adding to this weirdness, George began looking around the home and the property to see, hey, you know, maybe something's causing these flies. Well, what he discovered was a small hidden room 
that was about four feet by five feet behind shelving inside of the basement. Now, the walls of this room were painted red, and the room did not appear in the blueprints of the house. This room became known as, and I quote, the Red Room. Not as the Red Room as in like, you know, what's that book? Fifty Shades of Grey. Doesn't that guy have like a red room where he goes and like punishes the women sexually or something? I have no idea. I don't know either. I was going to say, you know more about it than us. <laughs> no, nah, never mind. So tell us a little bit more about this room, Dan. All right. This room had a profound effect on their dog, Harry, who refused to go near it and cowered as if sensing something ominous. There were cold spots and odors of perfume and excrement in the areas of the house where no wind drafts or piping would explain the source. So shortly after finding this red room, the Lutz's five-year-old daughter, Missy, developed an imaginary friend named Jody, which was described as a demonic, pig-like creature with glowing red eyes. That's a crazy imaginary friend. Oh, yeah. George and Kathy initially didn't pay much attention to their daughter's imaginary friend until one early morning on Christmas Day in 1975. That morning, George was walking back to their home from the boathouse and looked up at the window. George froze in fear. He saw Missy standing in her bedroom window, staring down at him, and behind her were two glowing red eyes staring down as well. Now George ended up running up to Missy's room, opened the door, and found her fast asleep in her own bed. However, he did state that he noticed her rocking chair was slowly rocking back and forth, as if somebody had been there in that room. Ooh. After that, George started experiencing more odd things, such as the sound of the front door slamming when no one was around, or he would hear what was described as a marching band tuning up, or what sounded like a clock radio playing not quite on frequency. When he went downstairs, the noise would cease. A few nights later, Kathy went to close her daughter Missy's window, which was located on the second story of the home, by the way. Missy's room was. Now, while Kathy was closing the window, Missy told her mother that Jody had just climbed out of it. So after Kathy closed the window, she said that she looked out of it and stated that she saw red eyes outside near a tree staring up at her. Now, that wasn't the only thing that happened to Kathy. She would often get numerous red welts on her chest, and she was even levitated two feet into the air. Some of the other things that happened was that there were cloven hoof prints of an enormous pig that appeared in the snow outside the house on January 1st, 1976. Another thing was that a 12-inch crucifix hung in the living room by Kathy turned until it was upside down and began giving off a sour smell. Now, those are just some of the many experiences that eventually led to the Lutz family abandoning the house and leaving all of their possessions behind. And it was only 28 days after they moved in it. Damn, not, not even a month. Not even a month did they survive inside there. They said, see ya, and they left. So, of course, many of you may know the paranormal researchers, Ed and Lorraine Warren who was the inspiration behind popular films such as The Conjuring and Annabelle. Well, back in the day, whenever these Amityville house hauntings occurred, they were actually called up to investigate the house. So in 1976, the Warrens began their investigation and took a series of infrared photographs. 
one of these photographs would capture a demonic-looking boy standing in the doorway. And we will have this photograph up on our website. You can just go to theoriesofthethirdkind.com, click on References, scroll all the way down, and there you will see the iconic photograph of the demonic-looking boy in the Amityville Horror House, which you see like the stairs, right? You see like stairs, and then you see a door that's open, and there's a small boy that is peeking over the stairs. And a lot of people say that he looks very similar to John DeFeo, which was the young boy that was shot and killed by his father years prior when his father murdered his entire family with a shotgun, which I can see the resemblance. Oh, I see the resemblance. Like, it's pretty much there. That's a scary photograph. That is. All right, so that right there is the Amityville Horror House. So, Dan, you want to tell us about this next haunting? I do. Now, before we get into that, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. Now, this next haunting we're going to discuss is called the House of Death, and this one took place in a small home in New York City. So this home was built back in 1856 on West 10th Street in Greenwich Village. It is what they call a revivalist Greek brownstones-type building, which are quite beautiful. I have a picture of the house itself, which, I mean, it looks nice. Nice brownstone. Okay, so it's just like a really vertical brown home you would see in New York. Yeah. Okay, not very impressive. No, but I mean, it's, it's nice, though. Yeah, it is nice. So this house earned its name around 1897 when the Borman family moved out of it, which this family was pretty famous at the time for supposedly helping with the Metropolitan and Broadway Underground Railroads. Anyway, so like we were saying, this house started getting its reputation after the Borman family moved out, and a celebrity who was a cyclist named Fred H. Andrew, he ended up moving into the house. Cyclist, what is that? Was he a famous bicycle rider? They had that in the 1900s? I guess so. Okay, all right. Now, in an article back on August 9th, 1897, the New York Times described Andrew having a moment of what they say, reckless bicycle riding that caused him to hit a boy that was around eight years old. The boy suffered a broken leg and Andrew was subsequently arrested. Even though no one died yet in this house, though, you know, it would become a place of what they call bad luck. So the next tenant to move into this house was Samuel Clemens, or better known as Mark Twain. You know, the American writer, Mark Twain. Oh, yeah. So he ended up moving into this home three years after Fred Andrew had lived there. But Mark Twain only ended up staying for 12 months in this house. Now, while he was there, he battled with bankruptcy, but he still published some of his classic works through his depression. A funny knowledge nuggie was that Mark Twain was a ghost skeptic, but yet he wrote of a paranormal experience he had in his home. It was one evening he witnessed a large piece of wood kindling move in the air all by itself, and he thought to himself, it must be a damn rat taking this piece of wood to use in his home. That is in my home. Maybe it's a piece of a new furniture. But to hell with that, it's my kindling. And that is when Mark pulled out his gun and shot at that piece of kindling floating in the air. Because that is what everyone would do back in the day, I guess. You know, just, oh, that's mysterious. But anyways, he said that the kindling fell to the floor and a few drops of blood surrounded the kindling. But there was no rat. 
This house had no problems with rats, but he still thinks that it had to be one. It was the only way he could explain the blood. So that was with Mark Twain, okay? Now, some consider that not a true haunting. Some consider the real haunting occurred long after Mark Twain passed away in 1910. So this one happened in 1937, where a mother and daughter who were new residents ended up moving into the newly transformed building. So they ended up turning this uh, building into like 10 condos inside of the house or something like that. So it wasn't just like one single house. It was like multiple condos or apartments. The mother and daughter had supposedly bumped into Mark Twain's ghost, to which he was like perched on a window seat. And that is when Twain's ghost got up and walked toward the two of them and said, my name is Clemens and I has a problem here. I got to settle. Then moments later, Twain's ghost just up and disappeared into thin air. I mean, not really sure what that meant other than maybe the financial trouble he had. But what is odd is that Mark Twain died in Danbury, Connecticut, which even though he died there in Connecticut, somehow he still appears at this house of death, quote unquote, in New York quite often, supposedly. Yeah. You think people are maybe mistaken the ghost for somebody? <laughs> it's somebody else. And he's like, damn, everybody keeps, <laughs> keeps confusing me with Mark Twain. I'm not him. I'm the killer that lived here forever. I mean, I don't know. He might have had like a strong uh, bond to that place, even though he was there for 12 months. Probably strong resentment feelings because he had to file for bankruptcy. He had depression there. So maybe he had resentment towards the place and he was just stuck there. A lot of residual energy left over that was tapped into the dimensional portals of the universe and appeared as a physical presence. Anyways, continue on with this next notable experience that happened there, Dan. All right, before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break. It's our last one, so don't go nowhere. All right, welcome back. The next notable experience was in 1957. Jan Bryant Bartell and her daughter ended up moving into the apartment on the top floor. She was a famous actress, psychic, and writer who moved into what was supposedly the servant's room, you know, the top floor. When she did, she immediately reported that, and we quote, a monstrous moving shadow would follow her around the house. Now, she wrote about how she had seen a ghostly figure of a man standing in the hall to which she decided to reach out to try to touch this man. What she felt was a substance without substance. But she also said that it was also like clammy and damp and that she could feel her fingers freeze at the tips, which made them numb. But she could also feel them tingle. At the moment of contact, there was a scent, fragile and sweet, unbearably sweet. Then more odd things started to happen. Food that was not purchased by them would already be rotting, like it had been left out in the heat for too long. Even their small pets would become increasingly aggressive for no reason as if something that couldn't be seen by the human eye, like invisible enemies were in the home, messing with the dogs or pets. Mm. So Jan Bartell decided that it was time to get a paranormal expert to come in and investigate the home. Now, the expert proclaimed that there were upwards of 22 spirits residing at this house of death. Of course, one of these spirits was that of Mark Twain. And another one would be that of a woman in a white dress. And then supposedly there was like a young girl. And there was even a gray cat spirit. Like your cat. Yeah. 
Now, if you want to read more about what Bartell experienced in the house, she actually documented everything and put it into a book called Spindrift, Spray from a Psychic Sea. So feel free to go read that, which, by the way, I want to say that is a horrible title for a book. My God. Spindrift, Spray from a Psychic Sea. It has nothing to do with or sound anything like <laughs> it's a building. Like she took random words and threw them together and said, that's the title. She could have just called it the House of Death or something. Yeah. All right. So tell us a little bit more about her book, Dan. Well, oddly enough, after she finished writing the manuscript for this book, she ended up dying. People claim that she died in a mysterious circumstance. Even though living in that house, she suffered from like depressive episodes and supposed rumors of suicide attempts, which. I decided to look up her death, and all it really said was that she died of a supposed heart attack. No, oh. okay. Well, you would think that everything would end right there, right? But it doesn't. It just keeps on going. So, on November 2nd, 1987, the murder of Lisa Nussbaum occurred. It was at 6.40 a.m. that day of November 2nd, and 911 operators got a phone call from a children's author and editor named Hedda Nussbaum. She claimed that her six-year-old daughter, Lisa, was not breathing, so they sent out an ambulance to the Greenwich residence right away. When the paramedics made it inside the home, what they saw was very disturbing. They found Lisa, the six-year-old, laying naked on the floor, unresponsive in the kitchen. A few feet away from her was her brother, Mitchell, who was tied to a playpen and he was soaked in his own urine. Hedda was found covered in bruises and had several broken bones. The investigators described the home by saying that there was marijuana, cocaine, hashish, over 20 crack pipes, and around $25,000 in cash laying around the apartment. They were unable to revive Lisa, and after the autopsy, it was revealed that the cause of her death was repeated Blunt force trauma to the head. Jesus Christ. So, of course, this led to the arrest of Hedda and the father of Lisa, Joel Steinberg, and they were charged with first-degree murder. So the story that they told was that after a cocaine binge, Joel violently abused both Lisa and Hedda, his wife. Hedda, though, avoided charges in exchange for testimony against Joel, which found him guilty of manslaughter in the second degree, and sentenced him to a term in jail, which he was released in 2004 and ended up working jobs in construction, which he was previously a lawyer. But I guess after that, he was just like, I'm going to like hiding and just do construction work. Hold on. Are you telling me this piece of shit is out of jail? Yes. Is he still alive? Uh, I don't know if he's still alive. Let's look this up real quick. Oh my God, he is still alive. Joel Steinberg is a disbarred New York City criminal defense attorney who's attracted international media attention when he was accused of rape and murder and was convicted of manslaughter and beating and subsequent death of a six-year-old girl, Lisa, whom he he and his live-in partner, Hedda, had illegally adopted. Illegally? Oh, I didn't know they illegally adopted. That just took a turn for the worse. Wow. So, Steinberg had reportedly been hired by a single mother named Michelle Lauders to locate a suitable adoptive family for Lisa, but he instead took the child home and raised her with Hedda. He never filed formal adoption papers, and the child was not legally adopted. 
So yeah, he was under the influence of crack cocaine and he hit Lisa on the head on November 1st. Then after the attack, um, he left the apartment to party with friends and had a call 911. The police arrived, transported Lisa to the hospital. She remained there three days and died after being removed from life support. Oh, boy. So she didn't pass away right then. She was pretty much end up in the hospital mm-hmm. for three days. And then they, had, they finally removed her from life support. You know, she didn't call the uh, police right away or 911. The Hita didn't. Lisa was unconscious and bleeding for over 10 hours on the floor until she finally decided to call somebody. And they said it was like repeated blunt force trauma. So he didn't just hit her just once. It was like multiple hits. Then he, I guess, left to go party. Jesus Christ, man. Yeah, he's still, he's still roaming around. What a piece of shit. Anyways, so those right there are some notable events that occurred in this house of death. But it is stated that neighboring buildings are now being affected supposedly by this haunted home. For an example, they're starting to experience flickering lights. They also state that there's like a ghostly female figure in a long gown that wanders around in the corridors. So yeah, the ghosts are expanding their territory, supposedly. Now in regards to the House of Death, it is privately owned now, but there are reports of you know, ghostly activity still happening to this day, especially on the stairs where most of the ghosts are reportedly being seen. That was weird, though, when I read that. It's like, why the stairs? I wonder if there's been a lot of people being pushed down the stairs there, just not reported. Uh, you think they would report that. Yeah. <laughs> Falling down stairs hurts. I have personal experience from it. <laughs> oh, yeah. It happened. What, what did that happen? Like January, February or sometime around then? Yeah, it was around then because we came up there and, dude, those stairs are freaking slick when they just have a little bit of water on them. Yeah, fell down those two flights of stairs. Oh, my God, I ragdolled too. Man, knocked myself out. That was horrible. Anyway, so there you go. Those are some of the notable hauntings that we wanted to cover in American history. It's a four of the four of the most notable hauntings. Now, we didn't have any strange facts or findings for these stories because we covered those when we, ever, when we talked about the stories. However, we do have a few theories that we're going to go over in regards to hauntings and ghosts and paranormal and poltergeist in general, okay? So, Dan, why don't you tell us about this first theory? All right. So, our first theory is that the ghosts are time travelers from another dimension that come and see what is happening. Or maybe that are time-traveling perverts with a cloaking device that are just wanting to watch you at nighttime to try and catch a peek at what you're doing. So you're saying like this, these ghostly activities, hauntings, and all that is just a byproduct of these time-travelers, these interdimensional time-travelers. Yeah. That are pretty much invisible to our eyeballs. Exactly. Okay. You know what? I'd like to believe it's the government. Now, I know this happened like, Hundreds of years ago, right? Or some of them did. Now let's hypothesize maybe the government has way more advanced technology than we are led to believe hundreds of years in the future. They had cloaking technology back then. They're like, hey, let's test it out. They put this cloaking device on. They go around and terrorize people. Hence why Mark Twain wrote in his book that there was drops of blood after he shot the floating piece of wood because it was a person in a cloaking device, picking up the piece of the wood, messing with Mark Twain, 
Now, I don't know why the government would want to mess with people or just to study, you know, psychology or how the brain reacts to certain situations. Or just testing out their cloaking device in general, just making sure that it's still working. They're like, God damn, I got shot by Mark Twain. Man, how did he see me? Yeah, so that's our, uh, that's our first theory. I don't know. That one, like, how do you explain some of the, like, ghosts and stuff that go through walls and doors and stuff? That's the only thing, like, if the government did that. Maybe it's not the government doing it. Maybe that right there is people just seeing stuff. Maybe they're just half asleep. You know, when you wake up and you're still in that middle of that dream state and you hallucinate a little bit, the mind is a powerful thing. I remember when I used to work security for Walmart, I used to have to drive like 45 minutes and work security. I'd work night shift. I'd be so tired driving home. And I would start hallucinating because I was so tired. I would see little rabbits run across the road when there was not rabbits there. I would see skulls fly into my windshield and there would be no skulls there. So maybe it's just people hallucinating and not realizing that they're hallucinating. I mean, possible. Because I know there's a, I forgot the name of it. I'm trying to like find it again. I don't think it's, uh, I think it's called epiphenia. It's where your mind fills in like patterns and stuff that aren't there. Say you're looking straight ahead, you can see your peripherals you see off to the side and stuff. You can't see it clearly, but in your head, your brain starts to fill in that spot like, hey, that's what this is over there. So it could be that, you know, seeing something like that, your brain's just automatically filling it out with whatever it thinks it could be. Okay. Or maybe it's just people making up these hauntings just for, you know, personal gain for, you know, either attention or money, which I kind of lean towards that and the sleeping thing, people hallucinating, more than it being some type of interdimensional creature, which I would rather it be that, because how much cooler is that, right? Yeah. But the more reasonable part of my brain thinks human nature, humans like attention, they like money, they like power. How do they get that? They make stuff up. So they make up these hauntings. I mean, it makes sense, because... Nowadays, like now, more recent modern times, hauntings, ghosts, and all that stuff, it excites people more. You got people out there like Zach Baggins, for instance, who goes and buys some of these haunted material, like items and stuff, like Dybbuk boxes and stuff. And then, of course, if a house is haunted, like he bought a house, the one that was, uh, I forgot where it was, but he ended up tearing it down because it was just, he said that the demon there was just so powerful or whatever. <laughs> okay. But, you know, People are more interested in that stuff, and it makes it as like a, I don't know, like a hot item. It's like, oh, this place is haunted. You know, it raises the value of it because it's haunted. It's mysterious now. So, I mean, that way it, it is money, but then again, it's like a marketing scheme, too. Oh, okay, so they can sell their homes. Exactly. Okay. Well, I, I got a personal opinion about this whole thing that I'd like to share. So, my personal thought is that everyone has an agenda. You know, to the priests that were in these multiple hauntings, their case was, hey, it's a demonic possession, right? And to the writers and the film and video producers that took these stories and made them into books or made them into movies, they saw this story as a great story to exploit for profit. Those involved saw what they were trained to see. Each individual was to look at the facts. So as the story continued on, it slowly was manipulated and the facts and certain information was emphasized 
to fit whatever agenda that they were pushing, whether it be a demonic possession to get more people to come to the church or to write a better book or to make a better movie. I think it started off as just maybe something not as serious. And as these stories began to be elaborated on and written about and made movies over, they just become more and more sensationalized. That's what I think. Now, am I saying that ghosts and hauntings and all that stuff is not real? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that majority of those stories are overblown. But I do still believe that there are ghosts and hauntings. And what are they? I don't know. I would like to know. I would like to think of them as like interdimensional creatures or travelers that we occasionally see, you know. That's my personal thought about it. I like it. Well, what's your theory about it? Mine is just basically, I believe, people manifesting spirits or sometimes demons, like they're summoning them. You mess with a Ouija board, you open up a portal, something comes through. I guess depending on how much you believe in it would determine how big the portal is for a stronger entity to come through. So once you start seeing something, you start believing in it, you manifest it, more you believe in it, the powerful it gets. So stronger portals, stronger beings can come through. So I'm thinking just like some of these are, I guess you could say forward agenda, mark like making money or something like that. But over time, the more, I guess, popular it gets, notoriety it gets, the stronger the entity can actually become. So more and more things start to happen. So the entity is feeding off of this attention. Yes. Oh. What an interesting take, Dan. Yes, sir. I like that. So you think that it's sort of like a summoning slash manifestation? Yes. Okay. All right. Have you uh, seen the movie, animated movie? It's like Jack Frost or whatever. No. He has to fight the, some evil thing. But when people like stop believing in something, the less powerful it becomes. But the more you believe in it, the more powerful it becomes. I think the evil thing in it was like about fear. So the more you fear, the stronger it gets. But the less you believe in it, well, not even believe in it, but you're like, oh, it's not powerful. It's not strong. You can't, it, I'm not scared of fear. The weaker the monster thing got. So it's kind of like that. Okay. wonder if that's why there's so many, like, uh, let's just say hypothetically, okay, you were religious or whoever was religious, right? Most religious beliefs, well, I don't, I don't say most, but it's quite common in religious beliefs that there's the devil. And there is, you know, God. So you got good and bad. So based on what you just said right there, what if everything that is bad that is happening on the earth is because of the devil and him make, getting power from the people saying, you know, look at all these bad things that are happening? I mean, yeah, you think about it because the news, do they really show anything happy nowadays? No, it's all doom, doom, doom. You know, what can get them clicks? Food shortage. Killings over in Europe, like all that stuff happening. People getting sick from you know what, can't say it, and all that. Nothing like happy. So what do people do? Like they become fearful of this stuff. So pretty much just like, you know, things that make you sick. Mm -hmm. It's all over the news and everything, but, you know, it makes people fearful. And that right there just, I think, is like a chain reaction. It's just building up, just adding more to it to where nothing's going to get better because no one wants to believe that it's going to get better. Okay. I can dig that. All right. Well, if you or a loved one 
have witnessed a ghost or poltergeist or have been haunted in a home or have experienced anything paranormal, send us an email to Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, at theoriesofthethirdkind.com or Dan, D-A-N, at theoriesofthethirdkind.com. We'd love to hear about it. Remember, it's spooky season, so there might be a ghost stories episode coming up. Boom. And your story might be featured on it. Yeah, yeah. Just make sure it's uh, not like 50 pages. And if you submit an audio clip, make sure it's less than two minutes. Okay? If you can. Yeah. All right. So do you have anything else you want to add to hauntings in American history, Dan? Have you ever witnessed a haunting or anything like that? I mean, I guess like ghosts, yeah, but. I'm going to save that for an upcoming episode. Ah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. But yes, I have. I'll tell you about it in a few weeks. I have to wait, too? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that is the end of our hauntings in American history. I just want to reiterate that we are going to be doing a ghost stories like we do every October. So if you want, you can submit an audio file. Make sure it's less than two minutes long. Submit it to our email and uh, tell your ghost story in it. Or you can write us an email. Don't make it really long, please. Make it less than a two-minute read. Yeah, and make sure to title it in the email, like, Ghost Story, so we can find it easier. Yep, and you will be featured in our Ghost Story episode. All right, so now we're going to move on to our On the Scene for this week. So if you don't know what our On the Scene is, it is where an individual around the world interviews random people or themselves and gives their opinions, thoughts, theories on current conspiracy happenings that are going on around the world. Now, anyone can do this. You, yes, you, can do this. All you have to do is get your phone out, record the audio on your phone, make sure it's less than two minutes long, make sure the quality is kind of okay. I mean, we can fix some quality issues, you know, but just try not to have like a train going on in the background or something, you know. Make sure it's less than two minutes long, send the audio to our emails, and we will put you in line to play at the end of the show each week. All right, so this week's On the Scene is from Becky, and we're going to play that right now. Ruin it, Soren, ruin it. Okay. Hello, everybody. First things first, Soren, do you believe in Bigfoot? No, what? Do you believe in Bigfoot? No. Do you believe in Bigfoot? Probably. Say that again. Probably. Maybe. Do you believe in Bigfoot? No. No. Do you believe Bigfoot has a big butt, like a foot-long penis? <laughs> what? Well, that's quite the jump. Yeah. No, I don't. I do. Well, if he's like any other primates, primates don't have big penis. He's not primate. What is he's he? He's not a monkey. What is he? We're primates. Yeah, he's but he's not a, a monkey. But he's yeah, big he's butt. So he's just a, an anthropod. He's walking a, around he's a hairy whatever. thing it's a hairy thing <laughs> elbow on the brain <laughs> what's a hairy thing what what's about a, a hairy what's thing an, what's an anthropod anthropomorphic animal oh okay that's not what that word means but that's what i meant to say okay no an anthropod oh yeah i was right okay. never mind then okay humanistic no. Yes. Do you believe in Bigfoot? Thank you so much. Bigfoot? Maybe yeah. This one. I haven't really 
Okay. Not in the restaurant game. There's no Bigfoot here. <laughs> All right. Well, what an interesting interview. First of all, I want to say thank you, Becky, for your on the scene. Yes, thank you for that. Bigfoot is real. But please, for the love of God, no eating while recording. That is one of my pet peeves is when people eat and they record. In the past, I've had to tell multiple individuals to not eat while they record on the show. It is one of my pet peeves. It was not me. No, no, it wasn't Dan. Well, actually, no, it wasn't. Um, smacking the food. It's another one of my pet peeves. Can't stand it. But anyways, on to your topic, what you're talking about. Bigfoot penis. Okay. I started to look into this. Primate penises. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, get this. Did you know that a male silverback gorilla weighs around 250 kilograms? So that's around 550 pounds, okay? But did you know that their penis and their testicles only weighs 10 grams? To put that into perspective, if a vending machine where you get sodas out of, if it had a penis and testicles, that vending machine, its penis and testicles would only weigh 10 paper clips. That's how small a silverback gorilla's penis and balls are. <laughs> Uh, now, even though they ain't packing much, I mean, silverbacks have like a group of like three to four females that are constantly, you know, either pregnant or breastfeeding. And these females are only fertile like once or twice every four years. So it's not like the silverback has got to have a big old dong. It's only got to work once every, you know, a couple of years. There you go. Damn. The more you know. Yeah. So um, chimpanzees. They got a pretty big dong, believe it or not. Apparently, theirs is 150 to 170 grams, which is silverback's only 10 grams. This is just disturbing, the fact that they weighed a gorilla and a chimpanzee's private parts. Yeah, their, their private parts, chimpanzee's private parts, is the size of a third of their brain. These measurements are really weird. <laughs> yeah, the largest gorilla only has a penis that is around two and a half inches long when erect. Humans have proportionately large penis size compared to the body. And we are the only primates without a bone in the penis. So there you go. Penis facts for you, ladies and gentlemen. Now you got something to talk about at your family dinner when your granny's just sitting there and eating, you know, her spaghetti and uh, the whole family's sitting there being quiet. You can say, hey, did you know that silverback gorillas got very small penises? And just look around at everybody and see their reaction. So if you ever come up against a silverback gorilla, just if you're a male, drop your pants and you wouldn't intimidate him. No, not at all. Don't take advice from Dan. It's only speculation. A chimpanzee will bite that right off. And a baboon would probably, you know what, never mind. So I read a story about that chimpanzee, I told you a few weeks back, about that chimpanzee attacking that one guy, bit his uh, balls and penis off, bit his legs off, bit his freaking fingers and face and lips and eyes and nose off. I just remember that one story of the woman that raised one and the friend came over and for some reason the chimpanzee just attacked her. It just like pretty much disfigured her face and all that. Yeah, they attack your face. They bite your lips off, nose, eyes, ears, all your fingers. They try to bite your hands off. They'll bite your genitals off. They go for all the vital parts. 
which is why I will never own a chimpanzee. I'm just going to stick to cats, okay? You want a dog, though. I know you want a dog. Eh, I don't know. I don't know. You think you kind of like dogs a little bit. Anyways, thank you, Becky, for your On the Scene this week. I love you, and I am proud of you. Yeah, much love. All right, so this week, we are going to skip regular shout-outs, and instead, we're just going to go straight to birthday shout-outs, because we have an assload of birthday shout-outs for this week. A lot, actually. All right, Dan, why don't you start it off for us and tell us your birthday shout-outs. All right, I'm going to go back because I missed a couple emails from way back. Like I said, make sure to title it like birthday shout-outs and stuff like that or shout-outs so I can actually find it easier because I get a lot of spam stuff. I think someone's signing me up for stuff, but it might be Aaron. No, 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 I'm not. Somebody signed me up for FarmersOnly.com. They signed me up for a whole bunch of freaking dating websites. I hate you, whoever did that. It's it's not funny. I can't get to my freaking emails. I get all these like Christian creature emails, right? You look at the Christian mingles in your area. It's like, I don't give a shit, you know? What's signing me up for? Islamdating.com. No, thank you. I don't got anything wrong with them. Just I don't want to go on a dating website. Quit signing me up for it. Anyway. The only emails I like getting are the ones Bigfoot's are in your areas. I'm just like, interesting. Even though there's... <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, but all right. So the first birthday shout out is to Isaiah K. His birthday was on April 13th and I missed one of those emails. I apologize. And he wanted me to give a shout out to his boy McKinley. All right. Next one. Let's see. I'm trying to do this in order here. Uh, Doug D. His birthday was September 16th. So happy birthday to Doug D and Isaiah. Happy birthday to you guys. Happy birthday. Uh, next one would be Alicia Bell. She turned 12. Her mom, I think, asked for a happy birthday to her, but in Nirvana style. Happy birthday. Alicia. I like that. There you go. Better than I would have ever done. Anyway, happy birthday, Alicia. Alicia, Alicia. I think it's Alicia. I'm butchering names. Oops. Next birthday is to Andrew Jones. His birthday was September 24th. And yes, people, I will be getting to October. Just catching up. Happy birthday to Andrew. Next birthday is Juanito. Now, this is what he signed off as. Okay, do not give me shit for this. Juanito the Mexican. His birthday was September 27th. So happy birthday, Juanito. Then next birthday is to Seth and Denise. They got married on September 30th, and both of their birthdays is on September 30th. Oh, dang. Well, hey, congratulations for uh, getting married. I'm very upset we didn't get a wedding invite. Yeah, I don't know if they got married this year, though, but the fact that their anniversary is on the same day as both their birthdays is pretty awesome. That's a big special day. Then, so happy birthday to Seth and Denise, and congratulations. Yeah, so our next birthday is to Cheney Stevens, which her birthday is on October 5th. Which, I don't know, that this will be a day after her birthday. So, happy birthday to Chaney, and she wanted an epic shout-out for her birthday to commemorate the day. What's an epic shout-out? I guess a badass happy birthday. Yo, 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 happy birthday, day, 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 day. Happy birthday, Chaney! Dropping elbows on my Yeah! But, alright, then the last birthday shout-out for this week will be Kuza's birthday. Shout-out to... His girlfriend, he says that he loves you and he's glad to have you in his life. So happy birthday, which her birthday is 
October 7th. So happy nice. birthday to her. Happy birthday. Love you. I'm proud of you. Much love. All right. I got a few birthday shout outs. First one I want to give is to Allie B. She said, my birthday is September 28th. She's turning 22. And she would like for both of us to sing the most amazing happy birthday song ever. She wants it to be so great and amazing that, oh my God. <clears throat> this is her saying this, so I don't want any flack from anyone, okay? She says, I want it to be so great and amazing that it wakes that it wakes Queen Elizabeth up out of her grave and gives her a heart attack and she passes away again. Oh boy. Oh, almost passed out. Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so yeah. Um, she wants a good happy birthday song. Happy birthday, birthday to you, Allie. Queen Alice taking the throne of Elizabeth. Queen Alice. Happy 22nd birthday. I hope it's good and be safe out there. That's right. Don't party too hard. Yep. All right. Let's see. Uh, next shout out goes to Joshua W said, Hey, my birthday is October 17th and I'll be turning 30. Could I have you and Dan sing to me in Sasquatch or Yeti? I know Dan is an expert in this field. He wants me to sing happy birthday in Sasquatch tongue. Yes. in Sasquatch tongue, Dan. Oh boy. What the hell was that at the end? Was that a voice crack? It was a voice crack. Okay. All right. So there you go. Happy birthday, Joshua. Happy birthday. All right. Ooh, just messed up on that. Okay, I got a couple more. This next one's from Jason. He says, hey, he's been listening to the podcast every day at work for the past couple months. It makes the day go by fast. And he put his girl onto the podcast, and she listens to us as well while at work. I was wondering if you could shout us out for our birthdays as Baby Lungs and Frayson. We are two weeks apart, and my birthday just passed on the 23rd. Proud of you, and I love you. So, happy birthday to Baby Lungs and Frayson. Happy birthday, Baby Lungs and Frayson. Baby Lungs. All right, so the next birthday shout-out goes to DeAndre P. He says, my girlfriend's birthday is coming up on October 4th, and it would be awesome if you could give her a birthday shout-out. It would make her day. Her name is Carmen, and I just let her know that I love her so much, and I hope she has a very happy birthday. And by the way, will you marry me? No, 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 he didn't put that. He really didn't put that. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm going to start doing that. You people start giving your girlfriend shout-outs. I'm going to start telling them that you want to marry him. Yeah. Oh, man. Anyway. Better put a ring on it. DeAndre, or Carmen, happy birthday. We're actually recording this on October 4th, so happy birthday. And, uh, yeah, DeAndre wants to let you know that he loves you so much and that you're awesome and amazing. All right, I got a couple more. This next one is from Catrice. She says that she hopes that Dan could sing happy birthday to my husband, Nestle. His birthday is October 6th, and they've been dedicated listeners for two years now, and this would be a much surprise to him. So his birthday's on October 6th, which is when this episode is dropping. So Dan, sing Nestle a happy birthday to a dedicated listener. Give it to him good. Don't pussyfoot around. I'm going to go all out on this thing. 
Oh, God. Put my hands on the mic here. So seductive. I like to get I take you to the birthday shop. I have Felix Daniels Lollipop. He already dropped his microphone. I like to give this happy birthday shout out to Nestle. Oh. His birthday comes out when this episode comes out. Oh. October 6th. He's coming out all the time. Happy birthday, Nestle. Oh. Happy birthday, Nestle. Uh-huh. I love you and I'm proud of you. Oh. Happy birthday, Nestle. Ooh, happy birthday. I think that was pretty good right there. That was. I'm proud of you. Well, thank you. So this second to last one comes from Abby. She says, love your guys' podcast. Been listening to you for about a year and a half. I heard them all. And I introduced my nephew to y'all via the Bigfoot episode. And he now listens every week. Can you give a shout out to Jonah Mack? My boy's 13 now, and he loves what you're doing. Auntie Abby is proud of you. Dang, look at that. Look at that, Jonah. Hey, happy birthday. And you know what? You got a great aunt on your hands, right? She's the coolest aunt, you know? You know what I mean? And I want you to go to your mom and say, hey, why can't you be as cool as Aunt Abby? No, no, don't say that to your mom. But Do it. Say it. Say it. <laughs> no, just say, hey, I like my aunt, Auntie Abby. And you know what? You cherish that time with your auntie. You cherish you it. You do. I wish I had an aunt like that. Yeah. But happy birthday, Jonah. Jonah. Jonah Mack. Oh, coming back. Jonah Mack, 13 years old, driving a Cadillac. Okay, maybe not a Cadillac, but one day you will. Yeah. Yep. All right. So this last birthday shout out goes to someone special. Someone that has been a ride or die person for us for a very long time. His birthday was actually on September 28th, which was last week. And as you know, we released a Patreon episode as regular for last week, so we wasn't able to do birthday shout-outs. This is to Brandon, our bodyguard. Oh, Brandon, our bodyguard. Yes. So, Brandon, I want to let you know that here in the studio, when we start finishing up this building of it, we're going to need you out here. We're going to need you out here cracking skulls from all the Illuminati members trying to get in, okay? But until then, I want you to know that I love you and I'm proud of you. And happy belated birthday. I hope it went well. And uh, send some of that muscle over here to me and Daniel. You know, if you got any extra, just, you know, cut it off. We'll sew it on to us, you know. I don't know if it works that way. I don't know if it works that way. <laughs> it's like some Jeffrey Dahmer stuff. Uh, but yeah, happy birthday. By the way, your girlfriend loves you. Okay. So there you go. That's it for birthday shout outs. I got one more. Oh, oh, never mind. One more. This is to... A happy birthday to C. Shelby off Discord. Her birthday was is October 5th, which is tomorrow for us since we're recording this. But happy birthday to her. They're going through a lot as well. And they actually have a, their puppy is in the ICU recovering right now. And it's a slow progress, but there is progress. So good news. So hopefully all is well. So happy birthday to C. Shelby. Happy birthday. I love you and I'm proud of you. And that's it. All right. Well, I guess that's the end of the episode today. Do you have anything else you want to add or anything like that before we roll this out? I got nothing. Yeah, neither do I. I don't have anything. All of our updates to the studio and what's been going on, we'll talk about during our Patreon episode. Yes, sir. All right. Well, with that being said, I want to thank you for joining us today. And again, thank you for your support. You are amazing. Every 
single one of you. So with that being said, Dan, you want to roll us out? Sure will. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you are not alone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.